0: What a great day it's been already, Southside. Hey, I just want to take a minute and welcome you uh, from wherever you're inviting us into. You might be in a cabin in the mountains, you uh, might be in your living room, might be gathered around a table somewhere, or you might still be in bed with a cup of coffee. Thank you for inviting us into your day and taking a moment to be with us. I believe that God's got a message for each one of us today, and I'm excited to share it with you. Uh, My name's George Franco, if we haven't had the chance to meet, and I just want to introduce myself and I'm an overseer here at Southside Church and uh, if you're like me, you're probably kind of wondering what does an overseer do, I've not heard that name or title before. And uh, simply put, an overseer is just a resource that comes alongside Pastor Mike and the Southside staff and helps them as they make decisions that guide our church and our community into the future. And so as an overseer, one of the opportunities that I get from time to time is I get to come and uh, speak and give Pastor Mike a chance to take some vacation, to take some much needed time off. And uh, when I get to do that, the thing I love is that I get to get on a plane. I live on the other side of the North American continent in a state called North Carolina. And I jump on a plane there. I fly to Vancouver. I drive over to Chilliwack, British Columbia. And it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. I always love going there. And I get to speak Spend time with the staff and I get to see you guys and I get to teach a message that now goes out to all over the world and many different countries and um, we're so excited to have everybody joining us and uh, it's really one of my favorite things that I get to do throughout the year but if you haven't noticed everything's changed in this season and borders are closed it's hard to travel And so I'm still on the other side of the continent, but through the power of technology, I'm able to still connect with you and send a message to you and to everybody who calls Southside home. And I'm excited to be able to do that today. And like you're in a different room, you'll notice that I'm in a different room today. It's much different than our normal uh, weekend service where we're in a studio shooting a message, but I'm actually in a similar environment to where many of you might be watching this today. So I'm excited to be able to connect in a different setting and in a different way. But God has something in store for us, I really believe, because as I started thinking about the message today, I started thinking about things that Pastor Mike has been teaching us since March and there's been a lot of interesting things that he said I remember this message where he talked about the genius in us and then I remember him talking about the hero in us and then I remember this phrase that you were created for greatness you were created for greatness and that continued to resonate with me. I, I, I continue to roll that over in my mind over and over again. You were created for greatness. You were created for greatness. And as I thought about that, I wanna believe it's true. And I thought, you know, there's probably three groups of people that think about that phrase. There's probably a group of people that say, yeah, it was a parent, a coach, a teacher. They called it out to me in life early. And I've known there's something different. I know that I have unique gifts and talents. And I know what my purpose is, and I've been using that to make a difference in the world around me. There's a group of people that probably say, you know, I have felt like um, I've been created to make a difference. Uh, I've been created to be great, that there is something unique about me, but I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know what my purpose is. And, um, and no one's really told me that before. And then I think there could be a third group of people, and that third group of people, as a group that says no one's ever told me that I'm different. And I'm, I think I'm just a plain everyday Joe. I'm an average person. I don't think I have any unique gifts or abilities. I'm not sure what my purpose is or how I'm making a difference. And so as I as I began to think about those three groups of people and as I began to think about this phrase and how Pastor Mike's been weaving this theme throughout the last several months, I said, this is a perfect time for us as a church to come and address this idea that you were created for greatness because I believe it's true. I believe God means that and intends that for every one of you. And so I, today, I wanna to spend a little bit of time talking about what is greatness? How do you achieve it? And then are there different levels of greatness, like great, greater, or greatest along the way? And so, you know, thinking about greatness, like everybody dreams of greatness at some point. Like there's been a spot in your life where maybe you dreamed about hitting the winning shot in a game or winning a championship or or being promoted to that position in your company where you can make decisions. Or when I was a kid, I used to dream that I might be a mayor of our city one day and be able to make some changes and make our community a better place to live in, dream about a lot of different things about what greatness would begin to look like. And this idea of greatness is this concept that when we think about greatness, it's assessing a perceived value or contribution of a person, that that when we look at a person's life, that there's some value that they've left behind, that there's there's a contribution that they're making to an organization, to a sport or a game, um, or to people around them. And so, uh, as I was thinking about this, I started thinking back to when I played baseball as a kid. and in the United States, you know baseball is what we call our pastime sport. I know in Canada it's hockey and In other parts of the world it's soccer or football and uh, but for me it was baseball and I started at a young age they used to put a ball on a tee and we would hit that and we would learn to run the bases and then it would go to coach pitch where the coach would pitch us the ball or then it would go to kid pitch and you go up through the different ranks of baseball and you would look at the people above you and what they were accomplishing and and how great they were at the sport but we would look at the professionals the guys uh, that got paid to play the sport and there were some greats that were much older than I was. There were greats like the name of Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb holds the record for the most bases stolen home. Or someone like Willie Mays. Willie Mays is uh, shares the record for the most appearances in an all-star game. He appeared over 24 times in all-star games. That means for 24 seasons, he was considered one of the best players in baseball. It's ridiculous to think that his career would even last that long, not to mention that he would be identified as an all-star. And then there's people like Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth, a lot of people know his name, the great Bambino, and uh, he holds baseball slugging percentage record at 690. And so when we think of these guys in baseball, they were greats, they were legends, they made a difference in the sport. We knew what they did and we knew what they accomplished. But the thing is with Babe Ruth, while he was actually playing the game, he held five regular season records. And over time, there were other players who came into the sport and began to accomplish good things as well. They accomplished great things. They were made for greatness as well. And some of the things they did became greater than Babe Ruth. And now those five records, only two of those records remain today. And I think one of the challenges is when we begin to think about greatness and what greatness looks like, it's not only greatness that we begin to desire or, or think about, it's the greatest. And so, if we take the example of the greats of baseball, and we ask this question, who is the greatest baseball player to have ever played the game? And we look at those same three players, people would make arguments all day long. They would say, "Hey, uh, uh, Willie Mays is the greatest baseball player of all time because there's five kind of key elements or skill sets for baseball: it's running, hitting, throwing, fielding, and hitting for power." And of all baseball players, most of them only have two or three of those skills, but Willie Mays was proficient in all five. And so when people say, who's the greatest in baseball? Willie Mays, definitely the greatest in baseball. But there are some people that would say that Ty Cobb is certainly the best player in baseball because the only way that you really win a game in baseball is you have to hit the ball and get on base to put yourself in a scoring position. And... Ty Cobb, he went to bat over 11,000 times in his career. And of those 11,000 times, he got, on, he got four, th- over 4,000 hits. So 37% of the time that he went to the plate, he actually hit the ball and got on base. It's incredible to think about. So people would say, Ty Cobb, definitely the greatest. But other people would argue all day long that Babe Ruth is the greatest baseball player ever. And the reason why is that when you take Babe Ruth's contribution to the team and what he did to help the team win games and championships, they couldn't have done it without Babe Ruth's skill set. And so it's not only what Babe Ruth did in his own accomplishment, what he achieved in his own accomplishment, he helped other people achieve way more than they possibly could have achieved on their own and so many people would say that babe ruth is the greatest baseball player of all time and this idea of great versus greatest is a challenge for us because we can't see our own greatness oftentimes because we tend to think of who is the greatest And this has been happening since the beginning of time. It happened, it says in scripture, it says in the Bible that it happened in the heavens, the angels would argue over who was the greatest angel. And when we look around us here on earth, people are always arguing over who is the greatest of all time. And I wanna take you today to this uh, book called Luke. It's in the New Testament to chapter 22. So if you have a Bible or a a phone Bible app, or if you are on your computer, you can pull up this passage and follow along with me. But it's found in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus is sitting with a bunch of his friends. He's having this meal. And basically he calls these friends together for what they call the last supper, because it's the last time that Jesus is gonna have dinner with them before he gets arrested and sentenced to death and dies on a cross. And so he says to his friends, he says, hey, let's get together. I wanna share some things with you. We're gonna meet in this house. And as they're gathered together that night and getting ready to eat in a meal, Jesus is sharing some things with his friends. And one of the things that he says to his friends is, hey, uh, one of you guys tonight is gonna betray our friendship. And it was crazy because these guys have been following Jesus for some time. They'd seen him do a lot of different miracles and they'd seen the power that he had. They believed in who he was. They followed him wherever they went. They wanted to be close to Jesus, as close as they possibly could. So no one in the room could believe that they would be the one that would betray Jesus. And they break out into an argument. They begin fighting over who's not the worst friend of Jesus. They're back and forth. I'm not gonna betray you. I'm not gonna betray you. And I begin to wonder if they begin to call out other their people and go, well, that guy over there, Thomas, he's a little shifty. He's been really quiet lately. Maybe he's going to be the one. Or Matthew, he's got a a really lucrative profession. He's a tax collector, and maybe he's going to be the one to betray you for money, Jesus. Maybe they're starting to compare one another and say, that person's worse than me. But the passage in Luke picks up, and it says, then all of a sudden, there arose among them a dispute about who is the greatest between them. So they go in one minute from arguing about who's the worst friend to, and then next moment arguing about who's going to be the greatest friend to Jesus. And so as this argument's going on, Jesus is watching them and he says this. You can find it in verse 25. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. And so while these disciples, these friends of Jesus are arguing over who's the greatest, Jesus stops and interrupts them And he begins talking about kings, an example that the disciples would know about. And the kings are these people that are in the highest earthly authority. They've been given the highest earthly title. They've they've been given the most influence, the most power. They have the most resources of anybody in their region or in their country or in their nation. And so the disciples would know that the greatest were the kings. And so Jesus used an earthly example of the greatest person that they would know. But Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise power over them, but yet the kings, their authority, they're the own benefactor, they're the own recipient of good because of their authority. And what the disciples would know is true is that when the kings took action in those days and did things for people, it wasn't for the good of the people necessarily. It was so that the kings would be remembered as good kings. They wanted to have a reputation. They wanted to have a status of being known as good kings. Oftentimes, kings would make decisions over people to gain more power and authority. So they might take over other countries or other territories and exercise their power over other people to gain more power and more authority. Uh, in their regions. And so the disciples began to understand exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, The kings, their motives are not selfless, their motives are selfish. When the kings act and do something, they're doing it to get something back in return for themselves. And as I was thinking about it, I'm like, our world today isn't much different. There's a lot of people that have power, um, they have authority, that have influence, that have certain gifts and skills, and when they use that power and they use that authority, they're using it to gain more power and authority, more influence, more status uh, for themselves. And it reminded me about a story about a 20-year-old lady who uh, was walking through the mall doing some Christmas shopping one Christmas season, And as she's walking through the mall, she noticed the Santa hut and uh, Santa was there. And there's a long line of kids uh, that were stacked up waiting to tell Santa what they wanted for Christmas. So she hops in line. Now, everybody knows that Santa only listens to wishes from kids, not from adults, but uh, she got in line anyway, and as the line moved and she got closer to Santa, Santa looked up and he noticed her, and he was like, I can't believe this lady, this older lady's waiting in line, um, taking a place of one of the kids. And so, when it came her turn and she finally stepped up to Santa, he just played along. He said, hey, young lady, why don't you have a, a seat right here on Santa's knee? And so she, she sits down on his knee and he said, young lady, what is it that I could get you for Christmas? And she said, well, Santa, it's not for me. It's for my mom. And Santa stopped and he goes, huh? You, you waited all that time in line for a gift for your mom? And she said, yes. And he goes, well, that's really sweet. He said, young lady, what is it that I could get your mom this Christmas? And she said, Santa? My mom wants a millionaire son-in-law. Now, if that was a corny joke, it's a bad dad joke, and you can put the thumbs down in the chat window, but this lady had selfish motives. It wasn't selfless, she wasn't really there for her mom. Yeah, it sounded like the gift was gonna be for her mom, but the recipient of that gift really was gonna be her. She was gonna get a rich husband. And so all through time, we've seen these examples of people who do things out of selfish motives. And so Jesus goes on in the next part of this passage in verse 26, and he says, "'But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves?' It is not the one, is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. And so Jesus has given them this earthly example, something that they would all relate to these kings who are leveraging things for selfish motives. And then he turns around and says, but this is not what I want for you. And then he begins to give them a prescription for what that should look like. He says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And see, at that time, the people that would have the most power or influence, that might have the most authority in their life, that might have the most financial resources in their community were older people. They'd lived a lot of life. They had experienced a lot of things. And they had deserved, as many people would say, the right to have that influence inside of their communities or Organizations And so what Jesus is saying is what happens sometimes with the greatest people is that they often think they know everything. They, there's no room for them to open up their minds to new things along the way. And what Jesus compares that to is a younger person who hasn't experienced life, who hasn't done everything, who doesn't know all the answers. A younger person has to exercise some amount of humility when they don't know things and they actually have to ask for help. Along the way, and so Jesus begins to give them a different comparison that they could relate to, some some people that were on the same level as them, and something that they would understand quickly. And then Jesus goes on to say, "And the leader among you as as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves?" And I don't know about you, but I've been to a lot of conferences or events, sporting events and where I've been walking around an arena or a convention center and I'll go down a corridor and all of a sudden a door will open up and I'll hear a bunch of commotion, I'll slow down and I'll look into the room and there's a bunch of people and fancy tables and tablecloths and I can see they're eating a dinner and I'm like, well wait, like who are those people? Are they very important people? Are they wealthy people, people of influence? And why are they in the room and why am I not in the room? How come I didn't get invited to that? And then I start looking and I'm like, oh man, they're eating the good stuff. Like I didn't get the good stuff like that. They got the really fine dining. And then there's this multitude of wait staff that are serving them, making sure that everything comes out on time, that the dirty dishes get removed at the right time, that their drinks get refilled, that dessert gets presented to them, that they get that after-dinner coffee that everybody so enjoys after a great meal. They're very attentive to everything that's going on. And Jesus uses this example, the same example, because a similar thing would have happened in their time where things would have happened and they would have noticed that people were eating at a fancy dinner. And Jesus says, who's, who's more important, the person who's reclining or the person who's serving? And the interesting thing is they're actually at dinner with Jesus at this time. And Jesus has been their leader But what happens sometime during that meal, we know that Jesus gets up and he grabs a great big bowl, a basin, and he fills it up with water and he grabs a towel. And while he's talking and caring for his friends, he kneels down and he begins to wash their feet. And you see the thing about washing feet that's interesting in that day is that people wore sandals. That's That was their shoe of the day. It was open-toed, it was open foot, and they would walk through the streets and it was hot and their feet would sweat and the dirt would accumulate and their feet were mucky. And can you imagine going to a nice dinner and sitting down and smelling the stench from your feet but trying to enjoy a nice meal? And so it was customary that the host of the meal would have one of the servants come and clean the feet of their guests. And that job, it wasn't reserved for the most powerful of servants. It wasn't reserved for the person, the servant who'd been there the longest or had the highest rank. It was reserved for the lowest class servant, the entry level person. It was the muckiest job. It was like, it was like worse than taking out the trash because you were getting down in the dirt and grime of somebody's sweaty, stinky feet. And Jesus, while he's telling them that to be a leader is to be one who serves and asking them the question is who's more important, the person sitting at the table or the person serving the person sitting at the table, he's down there washing their feet, caring for them. And so his friends are in a dilemma because he's asking them who's more important, but then he turns around and says, but I am among you as the one who serves because he's He's down in the muck taking care of them, doing one of the most menial, dirtiest tasks of the day. And so at this point, Jesus is is really teaching his disciples that to step up in life, you actually have to step down, that it's not about your title and your authority. It's about using your position, your influence, the things that you've been giving to serve other people, to do something for them that they may not be able to do or can't do on their own. And I think it's a pretty powerful principle that Jesus is teaching in this moment to his disciples. And so as I was thinking about this idea of you have to step up to step down, it reminded me of a story of George Washington. And uh, George Washington was one of the presidents of the United States. He is a great leader in so many different ways, but he commanded the army. He was the commander in chief and uh, he was out with the troops and he'd been stowed away in his little hut. And he decided that it was time to get out and get some fresh air, but it was in the middle of winter. So he walked over and he grabbed this big heavy coat and he put it on and the coat covered up his uniform and his rank. So nobody could really see who he was. And then he pulled on this great big heavy hat, which kind of covered his hair and his face. And he went for a stroll through the camp. And as he was going through the camp, he came across an area in the camp where the soldiers were rebuilding a wall. And the wall was nothing more than hewn logs, great big long logs that took lots of men to grab and to hoist and to stack on top of one of each other and to fix them in place. And so they had stacked log on top of log and the wall got higher and higher and it got just above their reach. And so they're on their tippy toes with this log at the end of their fingers, trying to push it up a little bit higher so it would roll over the last log and lock into place. And as he stopped to observe what was happening, he noticed that there was a corporal off to the side who was barking orders. He was the guy in charge. And he would yell at his men, up with that log, up with that log, together now men, push, push, push. And the men would get the log all the way up to almost the top again and it would almost get in place and they would run out of steam and the log would come crashing to the ground. And so Washington watched this happen two or three times The same thing happened over and over again. The corporal would bark orders louder and louder. Like these men just aren't good enough. They're not listening to what I'm saying. They just got to do what I'm telling them to do. And so the next time the men grab the log and they're hoisting it, the corporals yelling, up with it, men, up with it, men. And they get the log all the way up almost to the top and Washington comes running in and puts his hands on the log. And with his strength and with his extra effort, they push it right over the top and the log locks into place. And all of the men begin cheering and celebrate, relieved that they were able to finally get the log in place. Washington turns around and walks over to the corporal, again, covered up so the corporal can't see exactly who he is. And he said, sir, why is it that when your men were tired that you didn't come and give them a hand? And he said, you can't see that I'm a corporal. It's right here on my shoulders. I'm the corporal. I'm in charge. I'm the authoritarian. I tell them what to do and they do it. At that point, Washington looked at the corporal and he opened up his trench coat so that he could see that he was the commander in chief. And he said, the next time that your men need help, call your commander in chief, I'll come help them. And I think it's the perfect example of someone who has a title, who someone who has ultimate authority, who has the resources and position to call other men. He gave all that up to jump in and lend the thing that he had. He had two extra hands. He had some extra strength to give them to put the log into place. And I think that's exactly the principle, the big idea that Jesus is trying to share with his disciples. And so there's this part Uh, in Luke 22, verse 29, where Jesus continues to talk to his disciples. And this is what he says to them after he teaches them this idea of stepping down to step up. He says, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at the table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And what Jesus is saying to his men at this point, what he's saying to his friends and to his followers is that there's there's a short-term reward for things that we do here on earth. And a lot of times our motives and our actions are based around short-term rewards. But what he's saying to them is there's a longer-term reward and benefit throughout all of eternity when we humility, with humility and with selflessness serve other people. You see jesus was trying to teach his disciples that greatness that true greatness isn't a competition but it's a transformation of us it's how we see the world around us that what we do isn't for our own sake but what we do with the things that god's given us is to help other people Uh, pat riley was an nba coach here in the u.s and He was a great coach, won a lot of championships, and he wrote this book called The Winner Within. And he talked in this book about how easy it is for a player or a person in life to become selfish in a team environment. And he has this quote that I thought was pretty fascinating that says, you must give up something in the immediate present, comfort, ease, recognition, quick rewards, to attract something even better in the future. You see, Pat Riley even got this idea that there are some short-term rewards that we can get and it might make us feel good in the moment, it might help us in the moment, but what we have to do is, if we give up some simple things in the immediate, we're actually working or living our lives or playing a game with the end in mind that there's a longer-term gain, a longer-term reward in view. And that's exactly what Jesus was teaching his disciples. There's this passage in Ecclesiastes 7 of verse 2 that I really like, and it's going to sound a little different because it's really used a lot of times in funerals. But it says it's better for a man to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasts because there a man will consider his destiny or his life. And it's this principal idea that when we go to a party, we're there to have a good time. We're there to have fun and to laugh it up, to eat and drink and to hang out with friends and people we really like or, or love. But when we go to a funeral, uh, it's at a funeral that we actually come to grips with the fact that we're all going to die one day. We're all, all gonna be in a position where somebody's gonna be coming to our funeral and hearing things. And while we're at this funeral, we're hearing about stories about a person's life and the things that they've accomplished, the things that they've done. And sometimes when we hear those, you can hear that there were some short-term rewards in it, it was about achieving success or a title for them. But there are other times where we go to a funeral and we hear these amazing stories of where people sacrificially, with great humility, selflessly gave up their lives. to help other people accomplish things they couldn't do on their own that they helped other people be successful that they they stepped into other people's lives with the things that they'd been given to give them hope for a brighter future and a hope for tomorrow and when we go to a funeral we have to think about like what will they say when it's our time and so I want to encourage you to live with the end in mind, not the short-term reward, but what's the long-term reward? What are the eternal rewards that Jesus was talking about with his friends that we would aspire to? And so this week, as you go throughout your week, I want you to ask a couple of simple questions. They're simple in in words, but they're hard to wrestle with from time to time. I know in my own life, I wrestle with these same questions, but I want you to ask this question this week. Do you humbly serve others with self selfless motives. When you serve other people, do you want something back in return? I know that that's hard in my life. There's many times where I've done things for other people saying, I'm going to get brownie points for that. I'm going to get extra bonus points for that. You know, if I give this, it's going to come back to me in return. But do we do things humbly with selfless motives, expecting nothing back in return, doing something for others because we value other people? The next question I want you to ask, are you willing to do menial tasks? Are you willing to get down and get dirty, wash people's feet, do the stinky jobs? Like Nobody loves to go around and pick up trash, but if it helps our community or if it helps other people around us, would we be willing to pick up trash? Would we be able to do tasks that oftentimes people say other people do that, or we hire people to do that? But are you willing to do that if it helps other people? I want you to ask this question. Would you would you rather achieve a status or make a difference in the world around you? Because sometimes we get really focused on, on a title or a position um, in life that we're trying to achieve, but is it the position that we really want because we want the accolades or we want the uh, power or authority or prestige that comes with it, or is it that we want the position so that we can make a difference in people's lives around us? And so Jesus, he he never held the title of a political office. He never graduated with honors. His life wasn't about achieving a status per se, but his life was about coming into the world and giving other people hope and helping them, serving them. So ask that question. Would you rather achieve status or make a difference? And the last question I want you to wrestle with this week or ask yourself is, is your life marked by giving or receiving? Is your life more about giving to other people, whether it's financially, whether it's with your time, whether it's with your influence? Are you marked by giving or are you marked by what you get from other people? As Christians, we want to serve the one. We want to serve the one. We want to reach with the message of hope of of Jesus, but really it comes down that we serve the one. We serve the one who served us so great. Jesus came down from heaven, gave his life for us so that we too one day could have eternal life and live in heaven and have those eternal rewards at the table with God, our father, our creator. And so in just a few weeks outside, we have the opportunity to put this principle in place Uh, to practice this principle in our life, to serve other people selflessly and with great humility, to do something for them with the gifts that we've been given, with the talents, with just, even if all we have are our two hands and we have breath in our lungs, that we can do something with those hands To help other people and it's called for the city and it's really putting this upside down kingdom value into place that jesus had been teaching his disciples because it's not the earthly way that we look at greatness it's a different way that god looks at greatness and it's this idea that the last shall be first that to to step up you have to step down that to gain life you have to give up your life and we as a church have the chance to do this together through an initiative that we call For the City. And uh, you'll see it. We've, uh, we've talked about it in announcements, and uh, you'll see signups for it. Watch our social media. There's more information to come about it. But the easiest way to get more information about it is uh, to text FTC to 604-670-3040. Text F. TC to 604-670-3040 and you'll get some information to your phone right away about how you can be a part of it. Now many people think For the City is all about Chilliwack, British Columbia, but no it's so much more than that. It's a greater vision. It's about our world around us and so it doesn't matter whether you're in Madrid or Honolulu or Sacramento, wherever you're tuning in from, we have a way that you can be for your city, for the people around you to bring them more help, more hope and more home, which is part of our Southside expanded vision. And so I'm asking you now to say, will you give up your time? Will you give up your title? Will you give up your position to come and to serve other people, to do for them what they may not be able to do for themselves? And the question that I have for you Southside is if not us, who? And then the last thing I wanna leave you with is the same thing. When we begin to wrestle with these questions, this idea that Jesus left with his disciples is that we have an idea of what greatness looks like here on earth. It's a short term reward. But Jesus said to his disciple this phrase, but not so with you. Southside, I'm so excited to see each one of you who were made for greatness to use your unique, gifts and abilities to find your purpose in serving other people, to become servant leaders in the weeks ahead and to make a difference in the world around us. I love you, and I want to just pray for you before we leave today. God, thank you so much for the people of Southside, the people that call Southside their home, the people who are tuning in for the very first time. Lord, Southside is about serving other people, and the reason we do that is because you came from heaven and lived a perfect life served us, died on a cross, Lord, rose again in three days to defeat death so that we would have the promise of life eternal in heaven. And so God, I just pray for our church that we'll take that same hope that we have in our life, the same love, the same servant leadership that we've experienced from you, and that they too will exhibit that to other people in a way that they'll see hope for the very first time. God, we love you and we're excited and expectant of what will happen in the days and weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen.